Hi, I'm Daniel Kay. I write children's books and I collect hermit crabs and I just enjoy life whenever I can. And I hope you do too. You're listening to The Leftscape, the shape of progressive conversation. Hi, I'm Robin Renee, and this is the Leftscape Podcast, the shape of progressive conversation. Hi, I'm Wendy Sheridan, and welcome to episode 105. Today, in our Ikigai segment, we're going to talk about whether we should monetize our hobbies into side hustles or not, and how that's working out for us. And then we will share my interview with Daniel Kay, who is an illustrator and writer and the creator of the comic strip Milo Kay Hermit Crab. We talked about his work and he shared very openly about his struggles with depression and anxiety. So that was a really good conversation. I'm excited to have you here. And after that, we're going to go to our new mini segment. You got questions? We got answers. (laughs) (laughs) On our next We Should Be Recording This for July is going to be all about porn. Do we love it? Hate it? Have problems with it? Join us on Patreon and find out. You can sign up for all our bonus content at patreon.com slash leftscape. Your support at any level you wish to contribute is so appreciated. Yes, it is. So it has been uh, a month or something. How long has it been since we've recorded? It's been a while. We took a four, little break. Four weeks. It feels more than that. I don't know. I know. But anyway. I know. <laughs> yes, this, this last month has felt like a bunch of months because... Right. During this month, my my daughter and her boyfriend and her dog moved back home into our house. So that's a lot. That yes, a lot to contend which with, is why sure. I keep thinking it's been way more than a month, and it hasn't. It's only been a month. So right, yeah. My my month is it's been pretty chill. I've been uh, trying to enjoy the summer by getting out, and also just I don't know. It's, it's weird. It's like. I've what I remember is really enjoying my alone time, but I've also really been enjoying getting out in the world again, which hadn't happened for a long time. So I guess it's all of that, (laughs) you know, (laughs) spending a little social time and beach and stuff. So that's cool. Yeah, it's been uh, I don't know what else to say. It's like so so much has happened in the world in terms of news stuff that it's I'm trying to encapsulate encapsulate that. But that's too much and that's a different segment anyway (laughs) but uh you know all is well i'm trying to uh figure out how to feed my cat without raccoons getting in the way oh so you're you're attracting more wildlife now (laughs) (laughs) well i went away for a couple days and i i have this pet feeding robot that that feeds rando outside um and she's a very friendly but slightly still feral cat i would say and yeah so it works i tried to get her used to it for a couple of days and it worked you know fine and then on the day i was about to go away i look out and there's the robot like face down in the yard 
full of oh, dirt no. and no food whatsoever. And I was like, only raccoons could have opened it. It was very, it's not, I don't know what other creature oh, could wow. do this. So a raccoon opened up the food storage area and ate all the food? Everything, yep. <laughs> Gone. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> so now I've been, you know, looking at YouTube for, for more strategic ways to get this to work. And it might involve like storage container that you cut open and put like rock salt in the back and duct tape and all kinds of other <laughs> things. So it'll be an interesting adventure. <laughs> all right. So, you need to keep us uh, up to date on this. This is, right. this is. This is an interesting uh, development that Shay Robin. Right. <laughs> Shay Renee. <laughs> Shay Renee. Okay. No, wait, that's my, my imaginary restaurant. So whatever. <laughs> Shay <Shea> Robin. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's good to be back. It's good to talk with you. Awesome. So as always, we want to make sure you know that you can catch a new episode of The Leftscape every other Wednesday. Subscribe to the show on our website, leftscape.com, or find us wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to get automatic downloads so you don't miss a show. Indeed. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Leftscape. And when you go to our website, leftscape.com, check out our show notes and sign up for a monthly-ish newsletter, The Leftscape Lookout. <laughs> and you can blame me for the monthly-ish aspect <laughs> of the newsletter. I, I try to get to it, I swear. <laughs> And um, and please join us over on Patreon for extra content and to help us keep making the show better. We appreciate your support at any level, of course. And the tiers are the front row seats, backstage pass, stage door, dressing room, green room, after party, and the elusive hotel room key. So um, <laughs> thank you so much. Episode 105 is the first show of our brand new season. And this season we decided we wanted to have an overarching theme and this season's go theme is going to be acceptance. So what does acceptance mean to you? When is it passive and when is it powerful? What things should we accept? What must we never accept? We want to talk about things like body image, physical and mental health, issues of race, religion, and gender. There's so, so much to dive into with our featured guests and in our conversations with Robin and me. And we're going to do this starting with this episode. Yes, I'm looking forward to this very yeah. much. Awesome. But first, here's three random facts and the news. <laughs> <laughs> well, the other day I was, I noticed that, you know, when you send people happy birthday messages or whatever on Facebook, I really like the bitmojis where they have like the different images of you sending, you know, saying a uh -huh. birthday message or whatever. So I like the one where you pop out of the cake. <laughs> I sent that to somebody and I was like, who invented this pop out cake thing? Like I, it was weird. I, I, th I thought of it as I kind of had an image of it from the fifties kind of something. Yeah. And so I decided to look it up and I thought, well, this is a perfect random fact actually. <laughs> so the origins of the pop out cake. In medieval Europe, the, uh, I'm going to say this wrong, but entremets, maybe? Okay. Uh, it's a between-courses dish. It was developed into a form of entertainment, which could include the presentation of a pie with live animals bursting out. So hmm. such spectacles were known as early as the 1400s and continued into the 18th century. And Sing a Song with Sixpence was actually a memorialization of that, where live blackbirds actually came out of a pie 
for the king, you know, which I thought that was weird. That was an actual thing that happened, apparently. <laughs> so then in 1629, the Duke and Duchess of Buckingham presented King Charles I of England and Queen Henrietta Maria with a pie from which sprang the dwarf Geoffrey Hudson in a suit of armor. And maybe we should call him a little person these days. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> but that's what it said. And so then the date of that pie banquet was the 5th of November, 1626. So that's very specific that they have that. Wow. Uh, but then from the 1800s onwards, the pop-out cake became exclusive to attractive young women jumping out of cakes during decadent parties. So, that, <laughs> so that's where you get the idea of what we know of it as today. So that was, uh, that was interesting. Yeah. This is a very random fact. The final concert is a live album by the American folk music group, the Kingston Trio, recorded in 1967 and released in 2007. And the reason I thought this was interesting was why is there a 40-year gap between the recording and the release of this, this album? I'm wondering, it's like, did everybody die and somebody needed to get money? <laughs> I don't know. Um, there was a lot of, I was thinking about this too. There was a lot of different Kingston trio versions at a certain point. So there might, oh. it might've been legal crap okay. for 40 wow. years. Wow. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not <laughs> but, sure, but uh, that, that but I, I, I might I, have I, to dive into that more. Cause and, <laughs> right. and, my, and my final fact is about B1 cells and they are a subclass of B cell lymphocytes that are involved in humoral immune response. They are not a part of the adaptive immune system as they have no memory, but otherwise B1 cells perform many of the same roles as other B cells, which is making antibodies against antigens and acting as antigen presenting cells. These B1 cells are commonly found in peripheral sites, but less commonly found in the blood. These cells are involved in antibody response during an infection or vaccination. And you can see a anthropomorphic version of B cells in the anime cells at work, which really describes very accurately how your immune system works, even though it's an anime and everybody is looking like people. So uh, I recommend that. Cool. And now here's all the news we can handle. Ah, news. I, I mean, so much news has happened since we last spoke. It's really kind of ridiculous. There was an assassination in Haiti. There's yeah. COVID people, people applauding that COVID, we didn't hit our numbers in terms of COVID Aww. vaccinations, which was bizarre. There's been, I, I don't even know where to start with all that's happened. <laughs> so that's why we just talk about a few things. Is there anything <laughs> else that stands out to you, though, before? other than what we wrote down? No, not really. Okay. I mean, the, just, the, the flooding that happened yesterday, but, you know, all oh. in like China and London, there was flooding everywhere. So I haven't even caught up to that yet. So I need to read something and find out. <laughs> aye, aye, aye. So yeah, of, the, of all those things that have been going on, one of the things that I've been really concerned about is with the end of the Afghan war and the U.S. finally... Leaving there, one of the big concerns is that the the interpreters and the people who helped the U.S. troops there for all this time, if they were left there, they would be dead, basically. Right, right. The, and I, the, I think they're they've moved a bunch of them to Abu Dhabi temporarily. Right. I knew that some of them were were 
being moved. I know that Guam was a possibility. A lot of people were saying that that would be a safe place to mm. evacuate people. And well, their I know there's like too. a temporary place in Abu Dhabi also that is holding, that is taking care of these guys until they can, until the arrangements to come to the United States are done. Cause there's okay. a lot, there's a lot of paperwork, I think, okay. you know, there's right. bureaucracy. It's always like that. <laughs> Right, right. And they can't and, leave them in Afghanistan while this is happening because then they won't be alive to come to the United States. Exactly, exactly. And I, I was just reading that Biden authorized $100 million to evacuate mm. Afghan interpreters and their families. So that's, good. that's a good thing. Yeah, because I know yeah. that the war is kind of heating up as we're leaving because the Taliban knows that we're leaving. They can, they're encroaching. So yeah, yeah it's, it's yeah. a very strange situation over there but hopefully some people will not suffer more. So there's that. Mm -hmm. And the other one is just the, uh, I don't know. I mean, I, the critical race theory is being sort of made into the, this boogeyman right now. Yeah, and, and this I has know. been for a while, but I think there are 26 states that have, things in the works in terms of limiting what can be taught in schools. And it's interesting because critical race theory is really, it's a much wider complex, complex theory about how racism is integrated into U.S. culture and, and um, it's, in our institutions. It, and it's not really taught in elementary schools. No, right? it's taught in law school. Right. It's, it's graduate level legal studies. And they have, they're calling critical race theory any teaching of history that does not make America seem like the exceptional fantasy that people have had for a while. Right. For you know, a long while, they, unfortunately. Yes, a very long while. And the other part of it that always messes me up is the, is the acronym because I see CRT and I just see cathode ray tube. Cause. Oh my goodness. <laughs> And I go, wait, what, what, why are, why are we against cathode ray tubes? I go, oh, oh, it's not that. It's the other thing. It's, oh, that's funny. <laughs> I have to do that every time I see the three letters. That's like uh, human rights campaign. Yeah. was always HRC. Yeah, and yeah, now it's like, yeah. wait, it's, it's Hillary now. Wait, it? <laughs> <laughs> so I have to, I double take on that one too. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so roughly 26 states have introduced proposals to limit lessons about racism and history in <sighs> schools. So I, I think that I don't want to freak out about this, but I just want to talk about how important like the local level elections are. And that's something that I know I haven't paid as much attention to as I'd like. And I think that's where we can make some impact around this kind of stuff is just try to get people in who are reasonable in terms of, you know, race and our history is it's a it's a part of American history and it just is being able to talk about that and being barred from even mentioning it in school, I think, is a really scary problem. And I hope yeah. that we can uh, do better than this. Yeah. So that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> <laughs> and while we were on hiatus, a local news thing is during Pride Month, there was a principal at the Camden County Eastern Regional High School tried to cut off the valedictorian speech from uh, the valedictorian who was queer and was talking about that and his queer experience and the guy cut his mic off. And then uh, I think somebody else gave him a microphone. I know there was uh, 
we'll put a link up. There's there's video of of his speech. It was really good, and it was kind of embarrassing to watch the principal go and do this. It was like, <laughs> you know, this is bullshit. Yeah, it was really moving, a really moving speech, and I'm glad that. However, they had arranged it. It was he was prepared to deal with it, and he just kept <laughs> on. And he just said, "As I was saying," and he kept yeah. on with his speech. And yeah, it was, it was very cool. Yeah, I would I would love to talk to him. I I don't know that we'll get to, but I'm going to try. That would be really cool. Oh yeah, yeah if we could. <laughs> <laughs> and my other news piece is actually from yesterday. It's actually from this morning, which is Monday morning. Over the weekend, the Tunisian president. <laughs> shut down parliament. Tunisia, often touted as the lone success story of the Arab Spring revolutions a decade ago, is facing a critical challenge to its fledgling democracy after its president, Kais Saeed, suspended parliament and dismissed his prime minister in what critics describe as a coup. Saeed is an independent without a party behind him, announced he was invoking an emergency article of Tunisia's constitution on Sunday night after a day of violent protests against the country's biggest party, the moderate Islamist and Hada party movement. Tunis was flooded with jubilant crowds waving flags, letting off fireworks and honking car horns after Saeed's declarations in scenes reminiscent of the 2011 protests. The mood on Tunis's streets following Saeed's announcement was one of both, both relief and patriotism with the national anthem sung loudly across the city, but the extent of Saeed's popular support and what comes next is unclear. On Monday, Al Jazeera reported that its bureau in Tunis had been raided by security forces and all of its journalists expelled from the premises, while in Hada vo voters fought with the president's supporters outside the parliament, according to Tunisian news website Webdo. The rapid destabilization and fears of a return to autocratic rule come as Tunisians' anger at one of Africa's worst virus outbreaks and the fractious political class's inability to tackle the country's chronic economic problems has finally boiled over. The president's longstanding vision has been for a democracy free from party affiliations with delegates appointed on the basis of local merit who would then appoint the layers above them, which I think is kind of an interesting concept. And I would be really interested to see if he can get that working and how it works, you know, where a local guy appoints the, the, they're voted locally and then they pick the people who represent them at a higher level. I think that's a really interesting form of representation. Hmm. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, so this is a very developing situation The and the uh, most recent election in Tunisia resulted in a parliament where no party held more than a quarter of the seats. So they don't have like a coalition happening really right now. Their mishandling of the pandemic has exacerbated popular discontent with the parliamentary politics. Uh, only 7% of their population has been fully vaccinated and their hospitals are over 90%. Their ICU beds are over 90% full. So their people have a reason to be really upset and the, the other scary thing, I guess, is with all of this protesting going on with all the people in the streets that could make it work, make their COVID problems even worse. So I just hope they can get their shit together. Yeah. Wow. This is a lot to take it's, in. I definitely want to learn more about it. Yeah. I mean, and this was something, you know, because we're just so focused on what's going on in the United States 
a lot. We are, we're not really, I mean, I know I'm not really paying attention to what's happening in the world until I'm, until I'm looking at the news segment for this show. And then I start looking <laughs> at the international news and it's like, holy shit, the world's like burning. So uh, that's why I kind of keep my, uh, my head down and say, oh, let's, let's concentrate on New Jersey and, and the United States. And then, you know, don't worry about everything else. Like all of the flooding everywhere that's also yeah i mean there you know i i try to do some of both but i think taking the mental health breaks are important yeah. too because it's it is hard to deal with everything but it's good to know i do want to know what happens outside of outside of our little world too and, yeah uh, i mean we have our own coup people getting and sentenced starting to get sentenced now and things like that so yeah there's that and, and, so that's a lot that's a whole and, thing but and the pelosi commission is getting set up i know there's a lot of bullshit going on with that with the republican or not or the republican representation or lack of representation i mean i know liz cheney's on the committee right it might just be her at this point I it think. might it might just be her at this point i know and i know that 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 whole thing with mccarthy was was that was like political theater, you know, it's like she let him pick people and she rejected the people that he knew she was going to reject. And then he reacted by saying, well, I'm going to take all my toys and go home and fuck you. You know, <laughs> it, it, it's, and it's like, we kind of knew this was all going to happen, but they had to go do it anyway. It's like, right. okay, we have something that's not like the end of the world. <laughs> yeah. We have something that's not the end of the world. <laughs> all right. Let's hear that. I'll hear that news. I can, okay. I can handle that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So a guy on Cape Cod claims to have been briefly trapped inside a whale. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, which I thought was, uh, you know, interesting. And what, basically. He said what kind of whale? Right. So I guess this guy's name is Michael Packard. And he was off Cape Cod. And. Uh, local scuba divers say that Packard's confrontation with the massive mammal, although rare, uh, and his condition afterwards are definitely plausible, while other people are obviously telling him that he's crazy. But, um, <laughs> you know, so uh, let's see what happened. I guess it was, I don't know, a great whale. What type of humpback whale? Okay. Okay. Yeah. So basically, he says that he was diving off the coast of Provincetown, and this was in June, and he felt a huge shove, according to the Cape Cod Times. The next thing I knew, I was it was completely black, he said. I could sense I was I was could sense I was moving and I could feel the whale squeezing with muscles in his mouth. Oh wow. Then he thought he was about to die and he struggled in his scuba gear, and then the whale started to shake its head and then he began to see light. So he ah! started throwing his head from side to side. And the next thing he knew he was outside in the water. So, uh, yeah, they think it was just a mistake as whales don't normally try to eat people or anything, but it just kind of got caught in the well for a second. I had to go look it up while you were talking Their Humpback whales are baleen whales or baleen. So okay. they don't have teeth. They're, they're the ones that eat krill. Right. So, so I can, and they, and they kind of just swim in and just suck up water suck and things up, krill yeah. and then spit out what they don't, you know, what they don't eat. So, so thankfully he was what you don't eat. What they don't yeah. Eat. I mean, if it was, a, if it was a, uh, like an orca, he'd be eaten because they wow. eat, they eat dolphins and seals and shit. So a person would just be a 
a seal with like extra plastic on it. <laughs> right. So anyway, yeah, so that was random and I just thought, you know, we yeah. need we need weird news too once in a while. Yes, yes we do. And and I think that's all the news we're handling today. So Yes. Hi, I'm Jennifer, the publisher of DameMagazine.com, and you're listening to The Leftscape, The Shape of Progressive Conversation. So welcome to our Ikigai segment, where we talk about the concept of Ikigai as we had originally discovered it from the meme of the Venn diagram, which our subsequent research is showing us we're not exactly portraying Ikigai properly. <laughs> I kind of discovered that this morning before we were recording. It's, so, it is hard to learn complex foreign concepts through memes. So I'm not sure I think true. it's fair to, uh, yes. to and revise what we're talking yes. about. But that Venn diagram with the four things, instead of ikigai being in the center, it's supposed to be the word purpose, like your life's purpose. And what are the um, four things again? Just to make And sure. the four things are what the world needs, what you're good at, what you can be paid for, and what you love. Those are the four things that are your purpose. And if you can get them all, then you've got a good job, basically, <laughs> mm. as far as as far as your vocation. And Ikigai is more of it's more of a concept of it includes things like being in the moment. It, it has a lot more mindfulness around it. And, and we'll talk about it in another in another segment. We'll get into the into the real detail of that, because I, I am not conversant enough in what they're talking about to explain it to anybody else yet. Mm -hmm. I like, I like this. And I, I feel like there is something about purpose that feels spiritual. It's not necessarily yes. just, Oh, okay. I got a job that I like and I make money and you know, there's something else beyond that in it. So even yes. the word purpose itself could, I mean, it sounds kind of Christian-y actually. I'm a little bit uncomfortable with, <laughs> the word because there's, okay. what's that book called it's, it's something know. purpose i don't know there's a book that's very not maybe not our ilk exactly that talks about this kind of stuff okay but okay. that's okay because we're us <laughs> <laughs> but i i'm interested in learning more about ikigai and i think it's like a thing that you live into i know right before we started recording you were talking about like like some of the buddhist and hindu concepts like satori and, yes um, well yes it's because it's because the word ikigai is buddhist. not directly translatable in, into english like the word satori or nirvana or right. uh maya or there's a whole lot of words <laughs> in other languages that don't directly translate into English. Right. And which, I feel like after many, many years of meditation, like I have a sense of some of those things, but it's not something that, uh, and it's not something I would try to explain either. It's like, yeah, uh, not yeah, that I know, I'm not sure that I know, but I feel like I'm closer to knowing, you know. But it's it's something, the things, the things I was reading this morning, which prompted me to go purchase yet another book on the subject, which will be <laughs> here tomorrow, and then I'll read it. They're, they're talking about how 
in the Japanese culture, it's just sort of part of your culture growing up and it's not something that you need explained to you because you kind of just absorb it through osmosis Mm -hmm. as your, as your culture. And that's one of the things that upsets me is the fact if you don't have a word for something, you can't experience it. It it's, it's, you know, if it doesn't exist in your language, then you're blind to it. You know, Mm -hmm. it's sort of like how, there, there, there are stories of of like the the native people in America when they first saw the sailing ships. They didn't really see them because it was so out of their experience. They didn't their brains didn't know how to interpret what they were seeing. Mm-hmm. And 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 that's just something I read somewhere, and I don't know if it's really true or not. So, which which kind of you know begs the question of you know if we are actually met by an alien culture would we even be able to like <laughs> to see them if it's something so outside of our experience is it something that we'd even process or or would it you know would our brains like reject the whole thing which is i guess a whole other topic than what we're supposed to be talking that about. is a different topic yeah i know i mean my in my mind aliens look like sexy sexy david bowie type creatures so i know that <laughs> i know that that's not likely to be accurate so <laughs> what were we talking about okay we're supposed to be talking about the monetization <laughs> circle of that venn diagram okay today. yeah i th- i just i just do full circle i think that as we learn more about ikigai i also i'm enjoying the the benefit of talking about it in the context that we first conceived it and i think i hope that we grow yeah to get more you know maybe through our bastardized osmosis learn (laughs) learn more about what the actual concept yeah i mean i'm i'm striving to achieve it because it sounds like a really great place mentally to be Mm -hmm. uh because you're just you know, going about your day, being in the moment and being happy with things. And that sounds really like a, a goal to to work toward. And the monetization and money in the middle of it. Somehow. Yeah, money and money is in the middle of it. And then and then there's that other meme or basically I call it a meme, but that's when people capture a tweet and throw it on Facebook, you know, so it's a graphic that gets shared around. And there's one that I just that's been floating around the last few weeks since we've been on hiatus about you don't have to turn all your hobbies into a side hustle, hmm. which is kind of the opposite of what I want to talk about today. So I've got that little thing in the back of my mind. And I'm thinking, you know, maybe I don't have to turn all of my fucking hobbies into a side hustle. Well, so, kind- so that's a good question. So what of the things that you do do you consider a hobby and what feels like a thing that you do or something else okay gardening is a hobby okay which i had at earlier this year or last year especially during the height of the lockdown i was you know getting into this gardening i was propagating a couple of plants by with cuttings and i'm thinking oh you know i could like put little plants together and sell them at flea markets and like yeah and then i'm and then i started thinking about is this something i really want to do is this something that i want to spend i mean yes i want to propagate plants 
I think that's, you know, because I have like this gigantic plant that just keeps getting huger and huger. And if I prune it and I stick the the piece I pruned into another piece, another pot of dirt, it's going to grow and turn into a new plant. And I can give that to somebody. And the giving that to somebody instead of selling it to somebody is the difference. And I'm, I, cause I just thought about, you know, okay, I have these trays of plants that I've been growing and I got to schlep that, put them in the car and schlep them to someplace and hope that somebody wants to buy one. And I got to compete with all of the big box hardware stores that have a garden center and Walmart and all this other shit. And I'm going, why do I want to do this? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, it's like, no, this is going to take all the pleasure out of gardening if I turn it into a, like a side hustle. Right. So that's so good it, to res- resist that urge sometimes. I think, <laughs> you know, I, I'm a perpetual organizer. So okay. if I want to go to the beach, I could just go to the beach, you know? <laughs> and, but there's a part of me that's like, oh, well, I could organize it with this group and we could do this and we could talk to these people and we can invite these. And I'm like, wait a minute. It doesn't have to be a thing with multiple organizations meeting. It's just too much. Like, once emails. a year, I'll do that. But, that, <laughs> but I'm done after that. Then, you know. <laughs> you don't want going to the beach to turn into 800 emails with 50 people. Uh, yes. No, I don't want that. So, yeah. yeah so, so I guess so that was interesting. So, so, so. Gardening is a hobby that you yes and and not and probably you're good. Well, that's I mean part of it is you know like last year I had that overabundance of tomatoes which you benefited from. Yes, I did. <laughs> or maybe it was two years ago. I don't even remember now. I it was because that was when we were like able to like see each other in person. <laughs> so I don't know. Right, twenty nineteen. Um, yeah, yeah. So yeah, this year it's eggplant. So I do you like eggplant? Because I have so much eggplant. <laughs> I love eggplant and my eggplant was not successful. So oh, I would be I was, very happy to take I had I, I plant I have four eggplant plants that are just very fr- literally very fruitful right now. And and I did the four hoping I would get one that would survive because I've done four in the past and they've all died. But this year, all four of them are just eggplant, 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 eggplant. And they're just, I've had, I've eaten four of them already. And there's many, many more. I just picked one today. So I'm down. So next time you get up here, you're going to get a big box of eggplant. (laughs) So So I'm trying to think about other things that I do. I mean, the thing for me, really, that I have monetized is is my music, you know? Yeah. And it's been, it's almost like the inverse, because people talk to you as if music is your hobby, or at least for me, <laughs> that's how it's been. They're like, oh, you're a musician, so what do you really do? You know, <laughs> well, it's that yeah. sort of dismissive it's- thing about about being an artist which it's it's totally the dismissive thing about being an artist and those are the things i have monetized my music i have monetized my art i have tried to monetize quilting with with mixed success and i think that's about it (laughs) but so i was just gonna say for me i i would say that i share your 
hobby status with gardening. I don't, I do less of it than you do, but I enjoy it. But, and, and it's not very serious. It's not like a thing that I'm deeply, deeply called to, you know, but right. my music is. And I think that it's something that I am glad to have made part of my career because it's, it feels more essential to me. It feels like uh, that's something that I want to be central to what I do and what I'm known for and what I, how I express, mm. you know, so that feels like important and and my writing and other sorts of production of words and sound, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that all feels important to me. And, and at the same time, I noticed that there is kind of a, I won't call it a loss, but it's a shift, you mm. know, like there are certain people who we know from festivals who play music a lot that who really enjoy playing music and enjoy <laughs> ad-libbing and enjoy sitting around the campfires and just playing all the time. Yeah. Whereas I don't have that really. Okay. It's something that's if I'm, if I'm writing, if I'm performing music, it's like a specific thing. It's a, it's a, it's more crafted. It's something that I work on by myself and present Okay. And I'm so, not as likely to just best bust out my guitar and just play on the beach or anywhere else. It's like, it's more of a, I want to be off duty if I'm doing something else. It's almost more ritualistic. It, it, I don't want to say that, that music and, and ritual are there, although it, my band Music for the Goddess, like our concerts were structured like a ritual. Right. Well, for you know, my kirtan, it definitely is like that. Oh, okay. It's really a, a lot of, it's a lot about spiritual experience, but. But you're more, you're taking it in a much more professional is what I want to say. That's what it is. It, it, it is a professional thing. And. And you don't want to, you don't want to, sh- it's like if you were an artist and you were just, you know, instead of having like this nice gallery show, you're just, you know, throwing up your five second, your, your 30 second sketches on Instagram or something. Right. That's that's the art equivalent of sitting at the beach playing the guitar. <laughs> yeah, I'm less I'm less likely to do that. And and I kind of miss it. I mean, it would be nice to be able to feel that about it again, but I think something about the professionalization of it made it less less likely for me to ex- mm. to re- explore that again so or to feel that. So that's a challenge, but Yeah. Well, I you know. it's 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 also I think like the beach playing just for the hell of it is, you know, one step away from busking, mm. you know, cause you don't have the hat out, but you're doing basically the same thing. Right. I only did that one time in, uh, <laughs> in Boulder actually. Okay. <laughs> it was kind of fun for an afternoon, you know? Yeah. But I mean, that's a whole, that's a totally different experience than a con than presenting a concert. Yes, definitely. You know, and, and it's, and I guess on the hierarchy of professional musician, you know, the, the spectrum of just playing, you know, just twe- twanging around on your guitar at home and performing at a, a stadium to thousands of people, the spectrum in there that that busking is like down towards the amateur end. Mm. You know, it's what you're doing. It's what you're doing to get your chops to go to the next level. And it's also trying to, you know, to give you enough money to eat. Right. Uh, at That's the same time. That's just sort of like the. Yeah. But you're not really ready for, for professional level music stuff. 
because either you haven't been discovered or you don't know, you haven't figured out other ways that are less labor intensive to make money off your music. Right. Okay. I see that. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say that about in terms of skill, but in terms of opportunity, you're probably right. Yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of people do it just because they want to practice, you know, a certain number of hours a day and they'd rather do it in public and maybe somebody will throw you a few bucks as opposed to just doing it at home and annoying your siblings or cats or something. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I don't know. So I, I definitely have a kind of anxiety about this topic because I feel like I was doing very well at touring and performing on my own about 10, well, 12 years ago or so. It's been a while. And then like with the economic shift in the U.S., it just really wasn't a thing that was practical. And I just mm-hmm. needed to do other things. And it's been sort of, it's been a painful transition. And I feel like bringing back more of my income from music is an important thing for me to work on. And it's mm-hmm. like, it's partly finding other avenues is partly maybe you know maybe getting back to live performing again or or something some combination of those things but there's a there's a feeling of being out of balance right now like if we talk about ikigai or whatever we want to call it i definitely this is one aspect that is not quite in sync in that sort of inherent sort of internal way like yeah. i know i know i need to reshuffle some of what i'm doing I call that needing to pivot. And there's been a lot of pivoting in the last 10 years, mm-hmm. I would say. Yeah. For a lot of people, you know, because the, the, the economic landscape changes, the way people consume music changes in general, not just because of the pandemic. I mean, we were moving towards, you know, a lot of uh, people were consuming music in a lot of ways that the music like the like spotify for example you know they're not really all they're doing is providing a platform to distribute music and they are paying the content providers very very little for their content oh i know <laughs> that, oh, let's get a few cents now and again cor- we get we get spotify pl- pays a quarter of a cent per play which is nothing close to what mechanical what the what the royalties for this shit is supposed to be like for radio play uh, you know that what is it like five cents a play or something i forget i, now. I don't remember i'd have to look i, I remember i used yeah. to know all of this stuff and it and it and but who the hell listens to radio anymore i don't even know if you know like the the streaming radio like sirius is paying what the radio what broadcast radio was supposed to pay and I remember there has been some noise on, you know, the musicians front and, and a lot of it is from, you know, established musicians who used to make a lot of money that, you know, like they're not able to make any kind of living off of their Spotify plays, for example. And, and, and those people like, you know, the, the big name musicians are going to have to be the ones to push the industry into actually paying, you know, decent rates to musicians for their music. Mm-hmm. And I think it it's fair because 
the streaming guys, you know, the like the tech guys that are aggregating all this content, they, you know, if there was no content, there would be their platforms wouldn't be used and they wouldn't be able to sell advertising and they wouldn't be able to do anything. And and it's it's like they're treating this pool of music or art or or whatever as like this free thing that they don't have to pay for or that they grudgingly throw you, you know, some crumbs. You know, I, I don't remember like the the what Spotify was worth or if they've gotten bought out by like Amazon or, or somebody else, which I think could happen if it didn't happen already that, you know, so their company's worth billions and billions of dollars or whatever. And then, you know, it's actually built on the backs of tens of thousands of starving musicians. And that's really a sucky, sucky system. Right. Yeah. You know, I, it's so weird because I think with the way that the in, that industry changed, I've become less upset about things. It's like, okay, everything's, nothing is like what it was I, that I dreamt of when I was a kid. It's a completely different business. You know, it's not, oh, even, yeah. it's not the same medium. It's not the same, nothing is nothing's the same. So I've kind of been like, okay, then I can do all kinds of different things and not expect, not expect to be paid in the ways that once I once would, you know, it would be merch or touring or something else, you know, doing something else. And that's been okay for me just because it helps to sort of explode expectations. And I think I can feel more creative in that space in some ways because okay. I'm not chasing a particular model. Okay. So, so you're not helped. like chasing a record deal, for example, like to go back to old school. That was like the, that was the goal. The right. goal was always to, you know, put a band together and get a record deal and then you're set. You know, right, right. Like, and it also kind of limited your sound because you had to fit into mm. a very narrow category, and it depended on how you looked and what people would expect and right, all that kind right. of things. And I think that's a lot less true now, so that's good. But um, I don't know about case that. Of, well, <laughs> it depends. It depends on your gender. It depends on you know because they still they still require women to be young and fuckable in that very narrow top of the pops kind of yeah thing which i'm not talking about okay okay sure yeah no yeah no i i, I mean that's part of that's still a part of it but it's i think the expansion of what you what you have available to you because of the internet has made a lot of that much more diffuse honestly yes and that's good but but what you're saying is also true that i think we should put pressure on people that are real that's truly exploiting artists yes. that's not that's not good either so yeah i and i feel i feel right now that the lands the current music landscape is very exploitive it for of musicians so i mean i know there's exceptions to everything and but i'm, I'm talking about my daughter and her friends who are all musicians also and they're all doing original projects and and it's like they're not even expecting to make any money from their original music right now. And they're all like putting together cover bands to actually make money, you know, and and that makes me sad. But, you know, it's what it is right now. I mean, and yeah. that's like the, the cover band, the cover band trajectory to making some kind of a living at music has always been there 
because it's like you know the bars will pay you to play sometimes <laughs> not necessarily enough but um, right because that was that that meme you know you take five thousand dollars of equipment and a five hundred dollar car to drive a hundred miles to make 50 bucks <laughs> right <laughs> <laughs> I, but anyway, I, I'm not as I think I'm not as pessimistic as you are uh, uh, right now about things because I'm I'm more I am open to surprising avenues. Like I'm open to doing things that I hadn't thought of before, recording audiobook type things or mm. just other kinds of voiceover things to use my voice and and creativity that maybe songs maybe something else. Okay. You know, and I think the more you're fluid about that, the less it feels like hopeless or something. Like I sometimes okay. I feel like people think, oh, it's there's no use of doing anything, and I don't believe that. No, I don't believe that either. I just I just get angry when I see the injustice. When I see injustice and inequality, I get really angry. So, and and I'm seeing it in the and I and I've pretty much always seen it in the music business. <laughs> but right. uh, you know, but like I said, it's it's. Uh, I'm hoping we can do things to change it and, and maybe things are happening that changes it a bit. I know, you know, especially with, you know, the, the whole internet micropayment things and people can support their band, their friends or their, the the musicians they do like through various, you know, they either buy their albums or they just send them, you know, money through coffee or, or band camp. I think, you know, there's mm -hmm. a lot of pay what you want on band camp stuff. Mm -hmm. um, one of the, one of the musicians we're going to um, have on the show this season does that. He has a, he has a pay what you can on band camp for his stuff. And uh, you know, and that's, it's, a, you know, there's like the two aspects you want people to hear your stuff, but you also want to be able to live Right. And to create more music. So that requires, you know, substance, substance. You need to eat. You need a place to stay. And you exactly. Need exactly. Money and for it, equipment, you know. Right. Right. And in my case, I'm, uh, money is not a problem, but making the time to do the art so that the art makes more of the money is is my challenge right now. <laughs> you know, and that's it's a it's a painful challenge. Honestly, it's not always an easy thing, but it's feeling more important to me than it has in recent times. Well, I hope you find the time and creativity to do it. Cause I'd like to hear more of your music. That's cool. So. <laughs> so what about you? You are, are you, are you working toward monetizing any of your arts? You know, I know that other, you have other than what I'm doing already. Not really. I need to, you know, I'm doing commercial art, stuff a little bit you know and editing I, you, whatever you, whatever people are willing to give me money to do i will do because i don't i don't have really large monetary requirements but i still do need outside income to uh continue to survive in this world so it's not like um i'm gonna you know flip a switch and i'm retired and it's like everything i don't need to do anything anymore i don't think that's ever gonna happen I think I'm always going to need some kind of outside income until I'm dead. That's the realities of this economy. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So make some robots and I'll buy them. Because <laughs> <laughs> I like your robots. Okay. <laughs> 
This podcast is sponsored by Lily's Stick of the Month Club. You have a dog. Your dog is the best dog, right? And you only want the best for them. Well, our best dog, Lily, is curating a special subscription box just for your best dog. Join Lily's Stick of the Month Club. Your dog will receive a specially selected stick pre-chewed by Lily herself. All Lily's sticks are dropped by the finest trees growing in our New Jersey backyard during the summer thunderstorms that happen almost daily. Each stick is guaranteed to be a real stick from a real tree, selected by a real dog, and put into a real box, and sent to your real address. Join Lily's Stick of the Month Club at stickofthemonth.com today. And now, back to our podcast. Well, I'm here with Daniel Kay. I'm very happy to have him on the show. Uh, Daniel Kay is the former editor of the magazines House and Home, Parents Express, and The Art of Living Well. He has written a parenting column called Dadography, and is the man behind the comic strip Milo K, Hermit Crab, which ran for 10 years in newspapers around um, in and around Montgomery County, PA. He has three Hermit Crab-centric books to his credit, as a matter of fact, and he claims to have been raised by a colony of Hermit Crabs. So that is a lot of Hermit Crab stuff, and it's very interesting. <laughs> so well, welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, uh, it, it is a little strange. Most people think of cats and dogs and birds, but uh, unfortunately, we got kind of hooked on the hermit crabs early on, and it only got worse. <laughs> I definitely want to hear more about that. So it's interesting. I was just thinking about your your latest book that is just out now. Is that right? Yeah, it just came out about three weeks ago. Excellent. In a time with so many of us feel like it's really important to do what we can to improve the trajectory of the world, I really just, I think your title is so evocative. So can you give us a little peek into or the story behind Never Tell a Hermit Crab, We Can't Repair the World? Sure, I'd love to. So I work in a retirement community. Uh, I'm the director of life enrichment there. And what that means is I really spend all my day connecting with the residents, making sure they're doing okay, see what we can do to make life better. It's a very positive position. I'm really lucky to have it. So one of the gentlemen that I met, his name's Howard Bogot, and he is a rabbi. And he and I just hit it off immediately. And he had written uh, many children's books in the course of his life. And he saw some of the work that I was doing with Milo, the hermit crab, which is currently in Grid Magazine as well. So he saw that in an environmental magazine and he was really supportive of it. He really enjoyed it. He liked the way Milo came uh, across as being very innocent, but also really interested in learning about his world. So Howard took one of his favorite books that he had written and had published a uh, boy about 20 years ago, and he wanted to rework the text a little bit to bring it to another generation and bring it with Milo. So we spent about a year going back and forth, playing with ideas and how we were going to do it. And then of course the pandemic hit. So that slowed us down with some of the things we wanted to do, but it, we also noticed with everything that was happening in the world that the peace angle, you know, to find little ways that people can can find the inner peace that they're needing and hopefully project that out onto the world really became the focus of what we wanted to do. So 
we just spent a lot of time together talking things out, playing around with ideas with the book and the illustrations, because the old illustrations, the one he had in the, the first version of his book, were very much just children. And it was more of a painted version of the illustrations where mine looks like a, a comic strip, more or less, or a comic book. So what we did with that is kind of projected it out to what was happening, you know, try to give a little bit of peace and calm to the world in very simple ways, whether it's going outside, being in nature, or uh, spending time with family, or all the little things that you can do to kind of pull yourself away from the really uh, harsh and negative reality of the world. And it really, it, it's been a lot of fun. It's been a great experience for me. And Howard, he's 83 years old, and he's just awesome. We spent a lot of time together. He's the funniest guy. And so it's, it's really been a, a delight for me. Very cool. So are your books really just geared for children, or is there something to enjoy, for everyone to enjoy in them? Well, I think it's one of those uh, nod and a wink sort of things. They work on a couple of different levels. At least I hope they do. The first two are, I admit, very different than the third one because the first two I wrote and the third one I let Howard pretty much write. And I find that they work for adults. They work for teenagers. They work for kids in first grade. Uh, you know, I've gone to a lot of schools and read my books to the kids and they laugh and they have a great time. And I'm really lucky for that. It's, it's a blessing to be able to do that. And so now with this book working on that other level too, it kind of just makes you uh, stop to think about everything in your world and children. I think they are so good at peace. They're so good at just living in the moment and loving life. So in a way, my hope really is that this reaches out more to adults who get lost a lot of the time and forget that we can have a better world and forget we can be nice to each other and kind to each other and just appreciate the little things. So yeah, we do try to work on multiple levels, little little jokes here and there, but more or less just trying to touch base with everybody we can. Mm-hmm. Very, very cool. What's Milo like? You see, so you gave a little synopsis. I'd like to hear right. a little more. Like, who is this character that you've been spending so much time with? Well, I, I like to think, and I guess a lot of cartoonists do this. They kind of make the main character their alter ego, where they the the character can say things perhaps that I wouldn't. And I think he's a lot more uh, sweet and a lot more genteel and innocent than I am. But he also reflects my optimism in better things and my sarcastic sense of humor to a degree, but it's really, I like the world seen through his eyes because everything is a bit of a surprise to him, but good surprises too. Not just, you know, not understanding the way the world goes sometimes, but he is, um, he's a sweetheart. He just kind of is living his life and he, doesn't see things as being awful. He just sees things as always can be a bit better. I know there's some sadness when he looks at the world sometimes because that's a reality for a lot of us. Uh, even the innocent ones, you know, will definitely see how things are a lot harder than they need to be. But I do like the fact that I can kind of live vicariously. I, I put him the closest characters I could get him to is um, 
if anybody ever read Bloom County, the comic strip that ran for a long time, he's a little bit like Opus in that, you know, just a little bit of a a decent guy, really, by and large. And then there's a little bit of uh, Hobbes from Calvin and Hobbes thrown in there, too. A little bit of uh, surprising Zen moments for him where he kind of clears the way through all the uh the the garbage of daily life and just says a sentence that i think cuts to the quick and just helps people understand things i like to think and i think that's what the rabbi really liked about him too is that he just has these big eyes and he's just trying to take it all in and i I think howard really enjoyed that part of him awesome i like that a lot (laughs) so you write and you also draw what is the power in illustration for you? How does that, how do you tell stories through that? Or what does that feel like to, to do? I, I like to draw, but I'm terrible. So I don't really, <laughs> it's not something I know how, what that experience is like, you know? Well, it's funny when you say you're terrible, I, I really don't think I do anything special. I just like it. You know, I just enjoy doing it. So I'm always doodling. I'm always drawing and I've, you know, been in art exhibits and done things like that with the other work that I do. But I just like that you honestly, you know, a picture's worth a, a thousand words. You you do it right uh, and you are going to connect with people on so many different levels. The great thing about illustration, especially simple illustration, is that it immediately connects you with children. They all love to draw. I mean, you know, some of them might say, oh, I'm no good, but but there's something that connects them. Uh, it's a very basic way of communicating. So when I go into schools, for instance, I'll bring one kid up to the board and I'll have them make the craziest shape they want to do. And it means nothing, just make a crazy shape. And then we put eyes on it and we put a mouth on it. And then we say, well, what's his name or what's her name? And and what do they do? Like, what what's their backstory? And I start talking to the kids about it and they all get so excited about throwing out information and creating this character. We all do it together, you know, in a room of 30, 40 children. But at the end of it, that's when I say to them, now, that's what you can do with your drawings. You know, it's not a matter of being good or, or not good. You know, I, I have a lot of artists who I followed through my life. And what I love that a lot of artists do is they'll show their drawings when they were children and then versus what they can do now which is amazing, but we all start off in that area. So I'm always saying to kids, like, if you like drawing, don't ever think what you do is not good. Yes, we can always learn other techniques and, you know, by doing it over and over again, it becomes second nature and muscle memory and all that sort of stuff. But there aren't any really bad drawings. It's really, that's the great thing about art. Everyone can do it. I mean, heck, they give a a brush to an elephant and the elephant makes art, you know? So if if an animal who has no ego and no shame and none of that can make art, then we certainly can, you know? And so it's, it's a really great communicator. I think it, for me personally, it's even better than the written word. You know, I, I write a lot too, and I enjoy that. But to me, I can show a drawing to anybody, and in a second, they have the idea of what I'm trying to convey. And that is is just about the most fun you can have. Yeah, I, I really appreciate when you, just with a few simple lines, you know, you can get, you can express an emotion or like very simple cartoons, comics, you know, can make yeah. me smile immediately. I really 
I love that. Absolutely. And that's, yeah. you know, the fun thing too, is that you, you don't have to study for years and you don't have to compare yourself to other people. And there are comic strips, daily comic strips I look at and I think, boy, you know, this guy, this is so simple. This is such a simple drawing. And then you see others that are so complicated because that's what that artist likes to do and everywhere in between. Mm, absolutely. I am curious about some of the other things that you've written and, and dealt with. I was looking at your website, you know, and I see that you've done a fair amount of writing on some really heavier topics like anxiety and depression. Mm -hmm. And I would like to hear a little bit about, you know, anything you'd like to share about that part of your life and that experience and maybe how this art that you're talking about now, how that plays into it or. Absolutely. Sure. Yeah. yeah I, uh, I started uh, on a kind of a downward trajectory, I would say probably around 11 or 12 years old, where things that used to be comfortable and enjoyable to me all of a sudden weren't. And it got worse as the years went by. I became very anxious, very depressed. And this was back in the uh, late 70s, early 80s, where you didn't talk about it as much and people certainly didn't understand it. So it went undiagnosed for a very long time. And I became more agoraphobic, although I didn't know that's what was happening to me. And I became more prone to these m massive day-long anxiety attacks where I could not get anything done. And the depression got worse and there was a lot of suicidal ideation and there were really bad times that a lot of teenagers go through anyway. And I felt like mine was just a lot, a lot more real to me. Like I had to fight off the ideas of actually taking my own life. I had to spend a lot of time really convincing myself not to do that. And there were times where by the grace of God, I didn't. And it wasn't anything specific that I can point to. There were instances of a lot of um, dysfunction in my family. And, and who knows, you know, we do look back on it and see different generations have had it and, you know, does it go through the bloodstream sort of a thing. But suffice it to say, you know, there were times where I would take jobs uh, after I graduated simply because they were low paying. So if I lost it, it didn't matter. Or if I couldn't go in, it wasn't a big deal. And I stayed that way for a very long time. How I met my wife and, and dated and got married, I have no idea. It's like a blur to me. It was almost like this is just happening through the anxiety and depression. Uh, and then after a little bit of time together, um, it started getting worse again. And it culminated on, I always remember, it was a Halloween night of 1998. And I was convinced that that was the night I was going to die. I just was having the most unbelievable panic attack of my entire life. And I, I said to my wife, tomorrow morning, if I make it through tonight, tomorrow morning, I'm going to pretend none of this happened. I'm going to downplay everything. But I said, you have got to get me help. You know, I, I don't know what's going on anymore. And, you know, I was, I essentially passed out that night from, from exhaustion and she followed through. And the next day she forced me and pushed me and pushed me to call somebody. And, 
And eventually I did. And it began this process of getting my life back. I, I talked to this therapist for you know a couple of years, three times a week. I spent an obscene amount of money uh, and I couldn't have cared less because I just, I felt so awful all the time. Took her a while to convince me to try medication um, because I always thought medication was for weak people. And I tried it and the first one didn't work and the second one didn't work. And then the third one worked phenomenally well for me. And all of a sudden I was doing things again, um, little by little, but it, uh, it grew for me. Um, and I, I had a great support system and I was very honest about it. I never, I didn't hide it. I didn't play any games with it. I just came out and told people. And then all of a sudden I got offers to write about it from little magazines and, and newsletters and things. And then the Philadelphia Inquirer, uh, I had written for them for a little bit about it. And I, they did a story on me and then I put it in all kinds of different things. And what's really interesting is you fast forward to where I work now, when the articles would come out, I'd have all these residents in their 80s and 90s coming to me saying quietly, like, I think I have this. I think I have this depression and we just never talked about it. Or, you know, I think my parents suffered from it because my dad was a heavy drinker and he cried a lot. And my mother was, you know, very cold and uh and, and stayed in her bed for three, four days at a time. But we never talked about it. We never knew what any of this was. But I started talking about it all the time because I was feeling better, doing much better. And I wanted them to do better too and to see some sort of a, a way out. Um, I didn't want to just sit with people and everybody just say they had it. I wanted to find ways to make life better. And I think in all the work that I do now, that's my goal for everything. That's why all the books that I do, we give away 100% of the profit. And I don't mean just like after our costs, we'll raise money to publish it from, uh, you know, people that we know. When I sell the books and, you know, we give all the money away that if somebody buys a book for $10, literally $10 goes to the charity. We've, that's what we've done. We've worked it out for all three books. So the first book was, a, was through a publisher who, you know, had to make money themselves, but all of my money went to uh, the charities and that went, uh, you know, $1,000 from that. And then the second book, I created this way of funding things and then, uh, when we sold books, we made about $5,000. And now this new book, we, I think we're probably going to be able to give away about $10,000 at the end of it. So that's part of helping people and it makes me feel good. And that's what I say to people. Like if you're depressed, the best thing you can do is help somebody else. It kind of refocuses your energy. And when somebody needs you, that can often pull you out of some of those really dark places where you're so in your head, you're so stuck in, in why things are so bad. But as soon as somebody says, I really need your help, it's just different. It, it awakens a different section of you. And that's a, a gift. So I tell people all the time, you know, work with me on that. I can definitely set you up with charitable things you can do, or you can do simple things. You can be kind to animals. You can help your neighbor. Like there's so much that we can do, but we get stuck in this feeling uh, of that life is, is pain and suffering. So I think therapy is 
a beautiful thing. I think medication works for many, many people. And I think being out there and getting getting involved in your, your world is a great thing to uh, help pull it all together. Very, very good. My last, next to last question anyway, <laughs> is you're so proactive. It may not be uh, that logical to ask, but I will ask anyway. Um, we're, the leftscape is entering into like a series of conversations about all the many facets of acceptance. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering, is acceptance a part of the formula in dealing with anxiety and depression or is it, or, or for you, is it about just going for it and making changes and making positive change? I, I think acceptance is one of the major focuses of getting better, getting healthier when you have anxiety and depression. One, you have to accept yourself. You have to accept your past. You have to accept your illness. If it, if you want to feel or you do feel it's a mental illness, which I do, um, you have to accept that part of yourself. And that's a really hard thing to accept there might be, quote unquote, something wrong with you. You have to right. accept uh, the, the ideas that come through therapy. You have to accept to go to therapy. You have to accept that medication might be your way. Like you have to accept all kinds of things that I think that you – when you're depressed, especially, I mean, clinical depression, when you have it, you you root everything out. I can't get out of bed. I can't do this. I'm worthless. I'm not important anymore. Like you have to accept a better way, a better voice in your head. You know, I always say to people, you know, especially my friends who are depressed, I, I say, would you ever talk to a friend the way you talk to yourself? You know, with a friend, you're kind and you're generous and you're loving and you're supportive. But to yourself, you beat yourself up over everything. You know, I'm a loser. I, You know, all that sort of stuff that people do. You have to accept a different world. And it is very, very difficult. And it's always easier to do what you know, whether it's killing you or not. You know, that's, that's what people do. So... I think all that sort of stuff, you know, accepting your past, accepting what has gotten you to this place, but also accepting the concept that there's a, a better life as possible. You mm -hmm. know, I, I used to not be able, literally, I could not drive into Philadelphia. That was one of my areas of, of panic. As soon as I crossed into Philadelphia, there was just something in my head that told me something terrible was going to happen. And yet I had no... I had no reason to feel that way. Nothing bad had ever happened to me in Philadelphia. But I did that. You know, I always felt that way. And then when I started getting better one day, I just found myself in, in Philadelphia, like near City Hall. And I, I stopped. And I looked at my wife. I'm like, oh, my God. I just I got in here and I wasn't even thinking about it where in the past I couldn't even get, you know, come down Broad Street. I couldn't do it. So I think that you do have to you have to find a way to love yourself and and forgive yourself for being for having this because it's it's not your fault but it's the way your brain sometimes is wired where you will blame yourself and undercut yourself and 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 do all kinds of terrible things and you also have to accept that you're going to have bad days you know if you if you get through this with god willing you will like like i've done all this work i still have bad days and i have to go back and remember so much of how to pull myself, you know, up again. And I, that's happened enough that I know when it starts happening, I know, okay, I know what this is. 
I know what I'm doing to myself. Now I got to spend some time pulling back. What's causing me to be so anxious? What's causing me to think dark thoughts? You know, I've gotten to the point where I have that logic, but it still ambushes me. I'm just, I've just been through it enough to know what it is. So I think that's a great subject matter for any podcast is to talk about acceptance because the people always hear that that word and they think, you know, I have to accept the way people are in my life. But what about you? What about what you are, what your your role and your power in your own world to help you get better, to help you make a difference? Yeah, I never thought I'd be working in a retirement community. I was an editor and a journalist and a writer and interviewing all these people and, and all that. But I've never had a job more rewarding. I've never met a nicer group of people. I've never laughed as much as with these folks. And it's, um, you know, I I had to accept that this was a strange road that I was on, that I can't believe I was working in a retirement community, and that it, it turned out to be the greatest thing that could have happened to me. So that's my feeling about acceptance. I, I do believe that there's a lot of uh, points of views that people can have, but I think that that's where you start to get better when you accept your world. Mm-hmm. That's, that is really inspiring on a lot of levels. And I really, I, I'm just appreciating the work that you've done on yourself and what you're bringing to others. And that's oh, really, uh, that's a wonderful thing. Thank that's, you. That's very great. So do you have hermit crabs now or are they part of your foray into I don't know, just the enjoying life. <laughs> well, we did. Right now, we don't. Um, hermit crabs okay. uh, have a tendency, uh, unless you work really, really hard, to not have the the longest lifespan. That's you know, what I thought. Yeah, you can have them. You know, I, I definitely have read and have seen people have had theirs for many, many, many years, and we had ours for several. But then when the last one uh, passed, we had two cats and a dog and we had a frog and all these other things. So we thought we'd take a little bit of a break. Um, We'll get get back into it later, I'm sure, because the the fun thing about hermit crabs for people who've had them and maybe haven't had them recently is uh, they are odd little, bizarre looking little creatures. And yet you can hold one in your hand if you have your hand open and they'll just sit there. And they'll they'll smell and they'll walk around, but they're so gentle. It's only when you're you're scaring them or grabbing them that they they'll pinch you. But they're really fairly sweet little creatures. So hopefully we'll <laughs> we'll have some more in the future. Very cool. Yeah, it sounds like it sounds like a fun menagerie that you have currently. So. Oh my gosh, I could tell stories. <laughs> right. <laughs> so where can we find you, and where can we find your work? Well, um, right now the the book so that we can make a, as much to give to charity um, is you can find it through the website, which is uh, www.danielk.net, uh, K with a K A Y E, and there uh, we do a lot of work in the Abington area, and now doing more in the Philadelphia area where we'll have our workout. There's going to be a lot more online as we're pushing it. The, the book and the comic strip, you can always pick up Grid Magazine if you if you like to, and that has us in there. And I think that there, 
the projects we've done, I think we're going to be doing a lot more as time goes by. They're going really well. We have places that are that call us about them and want them, uh, and we're blessed by that. Uh, and then hopefully, when uh, when the new year comes, the new school year, we hope to be out to schools and things like that and reading the book to kids, and that's always a ton of fun. So we'll be around. You don't have to worry about it. We're not going anywhere. All right. Well, thank you so much. It's been great to talk with you and well, you are inspiring. Oh, uh, well, thank you. Thanks for what you're doing for the community. I mean, you're helping people uh, all over and I just bless you for doing that. And thanks everybody for listening and, and hope to talk to you again soon. All right. You got questions, we got answers. So, <laughs> I love who's, it. Who's our questioner and what's the question? Yes, well, Evie Vanderweel wrote to me to ask Is Guardians of the Galaxy Yacht Rock? <laughs> I love this question. <laughs> this question makes me happy. Everything about Yacht Rock makes me happy. And I, it's kind of a perfect question for us because Guardians of the Galaxy sounds like a Wendy thing and <laughs> Yacht Rock sounds like a me thing. So Yes, it, well, it's not. It is a me. It is a, Guardians of the Galaxy is a Wendy thing. So yes. it doesn't sound like it is. So I mean, okay. I, two so of my... Explain it because I had to ask you what exactly this... Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy about. is a comic book that got made into a movie. It's part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And two of my cats are named after two characters in this film. And, and, they, and they ended up in the Avengers, you know, the, the big battle thing, the Infinity War and Endgame movies. It was in that. But Guardians of the Galaxy, and there may be spoilers, so just be aware. Uh, it's about this guy who was born on Earth. And I forget his regular name, but his uh, superhero name or whatever is Star-Lord. And uh, not pretentious at all. <laughs> <laughs> and his mom apparently had sex with some alien godlike creature. And this kid was born and she died of cancer, I think. And and then, then this is like at the beginning of the movie. And then like these aliens come and pick him up when he was a kid. And he has this cassette tape, which says awesome mix volume one and he and he has like a, a walkman and he listens to it all the time and that's like his only touchstone to earth culture until like the movie opens and i think maybe he goes back to earth i don't remember now but anyway there are 12 songs on the first awesome mix for the for volume one and then they did a sequel movie later on and there's a second awesome mix there's an awesome mix volume two with 14 songs, one of which was written just for the movie and has David Hasselhoff singing. So, uh, <laughs> so in answer that, to the question, <laughs> I was going to tell you the names of the songs. Oh, go, go, go for it. Say the names of the okay. songs. Yeah. Okay. And you can tell me if they're yacht or not. Nyat. I love the yacht. I love <laughs> trying to say that. It's, okay. So if, it's yacht me and this is I get this from Robin and she should be telling me this, but yacht is yes, it's yacht rock, and yacht is no, it's not yacht rock. Exactly. <laughs> All right. So song number one, 
Hooked on a Feeling by Blue Suede. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm loving how you're doing. I love how we're doing this. Second one, Spirit in the Sky by Norman Greenbaum. Great song, but not. I think you skipped a song, didn't you? Go All the oh, Way I'm by sorry. Raspberries? Yep. Yes, I, I'm going down too calm. I'm not going across. Okay. Yes, Go uh -oh. All the Way by the Raspberries. Yeah, not. <laughs> okay. Well, Spirit in the Sky was not. <laughs> not. Okay. Uh, Moon Age Daydream by David Bowie. Fucking excellent song. Not Yacht Rock. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there's a lot of those. Uh, fooled Around and Fell in Love. I'm assuming that last word is. It's not making it on this. I love Elvin. that song. I love Elvin Bishop. That, that tune is great. I do not believe that is Yacht Rock at, at, at all. No. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm Not in Love by 10CC. That of all of these songs might have like the smoothest feel to it or something. Um, but it, it, it's not going to be Yacht Rock, no. Okay. I Want You Back by the Jackson 5. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. I love how you say that. <laughs> Come and Get Your Love by Redbone. Well, that's kind of a cool tune. I, uh, it has a bounce. It's, it's early. Uh, it, it can't be Yacht Rock, though. Okay. I'm going to say that pretty much you know my answer to all these songs. Yes, I know. I know. Cherry Bomb by the Runaways. And I love that song. And I know I could tell that's not, that's not. <laughs> no, that is the best early punk. It's so good. And, and not, <laughs> not. It's not. It, uh, but I do. I love that song. Yeah. <laughs> Escape the Pina Colada song by Rupert Holmes. <laughs> Now, this is a song that will really piss Yacht Rock fans <laughs> off because people assume this is Yacht Rock. And no, no, very a lot of people are really pissed off at, at uh, Rupert Holmes. Him by Rupert Holmes comes the closest. Um, I would have to look <laughs> on Yacht or Yacht to see where that actually fell in the, on what, the, the Yacht scale. What the <laughs> I love this <laughs> the Yatsky scale. Yeah. Okay, so I, yeah I, yes. Rupert Holmes, him by, by uh, Rupert Holmes is 50.50 on the Yatsky scale scale. Just by the skin of its teeth, it is <laughs> Yacht Rock. But, but, no, but that's escape. the only song by him, not Escape, no. What, what was the name of your, your Yatsy scale? What is it? Yacht? The Yatsky scale. Yatsky. Yachtsky, uh -huh. not Yachtsy. Yeah. Yachtsky. The Pina song is a 35.25. That is oh, yeah, definitely Yacht. Yacht. Okay. <laughs> Ooh Child by the Five Stair Steps. Nah, that's some really nice soul, but it is not Yacht Rock. And Ain't No Mountain High Enough is the last one on uh, Awesome Mix 1. Yeah, I would say ditto for that song. Marvin so, yeah, Day. so this is like, see, the, 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 the thing is that people think Yacht Rock is like, chill songs from the 70s but it's it's a lot more specific so a <laughs> lot of these tunes are, are are fun and i like them but they are not yacht rock <laughs> okay and and um let's quickly go through the volume two mix and that will be can we have for... to do we have to go through every song again <laughs> no no okay so were there any songs in volume two of the awesome mix volume two that were yacht rock 
I do not see any Yacht Rock in this list at all. There's Mr. Blue Sky by Electric Light Orchestra, which is a song I really love, especially not at all Yacht Rock. <laughs> um, just different things on here. I want to say that, oh, My Sweet Lord, I love that song also. Yeah, it's I mean, too it's early. It's not, has nothing to do with Yacht Rock. Brandy, You're a Fine Girl, which I find this, this is kind of an amusing one because first of all, look, the looking glass is from my old college town, New Brunswick. And I think that's, mm. I just like that fact about them. They're kind of cool. But a lot of people also think that Yacht Rock is like any song that mentions like a boat or uh, the, the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> and so people think Brandy is, uh, is about, is Yacht and it, it isn't, but it's, um, it's kind of like Marina Rock or something like that. It's something else. It's, <laughs> It's, it's, you know, it's fun. It's Doc Rock. Doc, Doc, Doc Rock. Doc Rock. <laughs> that's, rock. A, that's a good term. Yeah. But no. So yeah. So Guardians of the Galaxy, it, I think it is what people are starting to, ex in, in error, expand the definition of Yacht Rock to include, but it is really not. <laughs> so that's my answer. All right. Well, tune in to our next show in two weeks for my interview with rapper 89, the brainchild. And we are going to talk in the Geekscape about useless superpowers. So this is going to be a great show next time. <laughs> yes. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> and I am Robin Renee. And until then you can find me on Facebook at Robin Renee fan or Instagram at Robin Renee music and on Twitter at spirit rocks sexy. And I am Wendy Sheridan, and you can find me on Facebook and Instagram at Wendy Cards, and on Twitter at Wendy Designs, and on Etsy at Wendy Cards with a Z instead of an S at the end. Nice. And remember, you can always reach out to us on social media at Leftscape. We'd love to hear from you. And send us your questions. We might answer it on an upcoming show. You've been listening to the Leftscape Podcast. Sound engineering by Wendy Sheridan. Show notes by Robin Renee. Fake sponsor messages by Ariel Sheridan. Web hosting by InMotion. Remote recording by Squadcast. If you like what you hear, please share it with your friends. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Leftscape. Become a patron of our show for as little as $1 a month at patreon.com slash Leftscape. Thanks for listening. <laughs>